or postgraduate students of anthropology. Um, I studied anthropology too, um, just to graduate level. And I, I think I, part of the reason I'm wheeled on today is to show that there's a life outside academia uh, in the commercial application of anthropological ideas and methods in a commercial sphere, but one where you are anthropologizing medicine in that you're making it ergonomic or suitable for its intended audience. And um, hopefully not compromising your ideals uh, against the commercial pressures of pharmacology, uh, medical treatment, and so on. Um, I, when I when I was a kid, I wanted to be read by I wanted to be a best-selling novelist. I wanted to be read by thousands of people, and um, I've partway fulfilled that ambition because writing medical instructions does guarantee that you'll be read by thousands of people. The, um, the average print run of a medical information leaflet is, is counted in millions, so maybe eight and a half million. Um, having said that, um, in a lot of the process of putting together a leaflet, your hands are tied. But before I look at leaflets, I just want to approach the subject from the point of view of um, information design and um, information design is what um, a whole sort of raft of skills such as printing, typography and copywriting has evolved into. The idea being that we are rather in a, in a world of information overload and that the suitability of presentation of information is really important and the people that you can look to as great examples of that are um, uh, people like uh, that are designing GUIs in operating systems like Apple, um, Windows, people that are designing GUIs for mobile phones. That's an example of information design, but we're, we're talking static information though. So uh, we want to define instructions and, and uh, an instruction that's um, I, I'm aware that not everyone's English or, or, or British here um, instruction as I'm using it today is synonymous with um, user manual owner's manual um, and information effort so, in other words, it's the things that you pick up in order to tell you how to do things. This is something that people are really comfortable with. Whenever people think of information design, they go, oh yes. Um, this is from a, a Czech airline. It doesn't matter if you can't read Czech, um, because it's got nice graphics here telling you what to do. Presumably you'll read this uh, halfway through your flight, you know, when you're fed up with the in-flight magazine or, or you know, the movie screen's too far to see. There's actually a, a whole cult of websites and uh, people that parody um, uh, these sorts of instructions, which shows that they're successful, they've become ingrained. 
the thing about um, instructions, manuals, is that we, we're often so excited when we buy things. We, we think that this gadget or gizmo is going to transform our lives, that we don't really read the instructions. Um, and, and it's strange because, I mean, in terms of instructions, often the instruction manual is one's sole contact with the thought behind it, with the thinking, unless that is intuitive and self-evident in the product itself. Um, who, who reads instructions? Um, and I, I like to poll you now. Are there, any, are there any situations where you would always read the instructions? I, I wanted to see a show of hands. Uh, a VCR, a video recorder. Who would always read the instructions when buying a VCR? Yeah? Okay. We've got two people, three, three. Um, a cabin card. Like this. Who always, who, who always reads the instructions? Who always looks at them? Don't be shy. Okay. A first date. Who reads the instructions on the first date? Wow. Medicines. A, a forest of hands. Okay. Um, no, I, I'm not feeling too technical today, so I'm going to show you what another poll produced. And, and this is interesting. It shows that um, the medicines are quite parallel with. What's the scale? <laughs> VCR. Yeah, no, no, zero to six watch though. Oh, the number of people that always read the instructions. So you are six people. Uh, Five out of six. <laughs> it, it, it was a joke. And, and I glossed over it because no one laughed. Um, but, you know, keeping you on your toes. I mean, the fact is that some people do sort of approach first dates from a sort of slightly self-informing instructional point of view. You know, they'll read a few books on, you know, the rules of this or you know, the the, the Buddhist guide to first dating. I, I, I don't know, but anyway, it's a joke. Um, but anyway, so, so you have instructional forms, and and these are used across different cultures. And um, we're really looking at something called information value. Now, when talking about cross-cultural information, particularly to do with health, um, at this point in at least some of the anthropology lectures I attended, you would be looking at, I don't know, HIV posters across the world and how HIV posters, HIV prevention posters in South Africa differ from HIV posters from Singapore, for example. I, I, I'm not going to go there. I'm just going to look at a, a successful information campaign in health. Coughs and sneezes spread diseases. Uh, during the Second World War, Ministry of Health um, Assembly line, someone sneezing, and so on. It, it was such a good little 
traits that they revived it and reused it. And, and you notice that the, um, they're actually targeting different audiences with these. So here you've got um, well-to-do people in, in the upper middle classes being told, given the same information that um, people on factory assembly lines are being given, and they're being made to identify with it. Well, I'll show you that as an example of a, a good campaign. And then you have swine flu. This campaign has become far more universal, more politically correct. We can't get away with having cartoons of segments of society anymore. Um, and a, a copywriter has not quite earned his, his commission with this line, if you can't catch it, you can't pass it on. It's not really memorable. It doesn't stick in. But coughs and sneezes, spread diseases, has. And it's, I think this was last resurrected in about, uh, the, the, well, you'll still see it in hospitals today. That's an example of a fairly authoritarian approach to discourse. Um, you know, their, their public announcements, they're telling you what to do. Um, and of course, the, the classic one, which I'm borrowing to give a, a health context, is this. It, it, it's actually apocryphal. It was never used. Um, it, it was printed. It was commissioned. But um, but you see, it, it's got all the all, all, all the signs of authority here. They've even put the crown on this statement as if it's the queen. I mean, it's um, it was commissioned and it was printed in a short volume. It was never distributed though. And it was found um, in, a, in a bookshop. And they, the, the, the people in the bookshop found it and started reprinting it. It was selling like hotcakes and now you see it everywhere. And, and, and it, it's resonant. It, it still works today, but it's about authority. And it's really telling you how to behave. And the thing about medicine is that you might have been able to get away with a, a sort of an authority figure doctor to a, a passive patient in the, in the 40s and, and, and 50s, but less so now. Um, people expect to have some choice. The problem about choice, and if you lose your authoritative register in addressing people, is that you are entering the vagaries of the free market. And my next slide shows you what a free market in medicine used to look like. This is a medicine show. I mean, what I found extraordinary about this is that this man who's probably saying, roll up, roll up, I've got something here. I was traveling as a young man in the Middle East. 
and I was taken under the wing of the Shah of Persia and his court physician gave me this, this elixir. I was sworn to secrecy not to divulge it, but I'm bringing it to you. This will help you get your essays in on time. This will cure you of insomnia. It's even good for hangovers. Can I have it done? Uh, yeah, and at which point, you know, they'll ask for a participant who'd be a stooge and so on but this magician he's a sort of magician he's an intellectual he's probably the closest that a lot of these people would get to a self-proclaimed intellectual anyway he's in a position of authority the semiotics of the, the, the medicine show and the uh, snake oil cellar, I mean, if you, if you read the transcripts or see it as it's discussed in, in popular culture, you know, it's the semiotics of life and death, of redemption, of transformation. And this is the thing about medicine. If you take a medicine, well, if you're taking a medicine in these states, you're probably taking a great risk. But if you take a medicine, you are you are making a choice. You're making a choice about what you're going to risk. And the problem about free market patient information is that it's exaggerated. Relieves instantaneously and cures headaches, neuralgia, toothache, cure, backaches, swelling, sprains, sore chest, swelling, the throat, contracted cords and muscles, stiff joints, wrenches, dislocations, guts and bruises. We guarantee a cure in every instance. It's not done anymore, really. Who would? If you're a medical company making these sorts of claims, you just wouldn't. You could get away with it. I, I don't make this too visual, but here's another one. So cure fear, dread, neuralgia, hysteria, disturbed sleep, melancholy, insomnia and all nerve pains and diseases. I mean, this is quite telling, since it's giving away what every marketeer knows, is that you need as wide an audience as possible. If your person's got money in their pocket and they're in doubt, they should give you their money. This one cures toothache and diarrhea. Um, it has a particular memory for me because it was produced until fairly recently and I remember when I was a schoolboy in town um, an old alcoholic approached me and asked me to go into a chemist and buy him a bottle of this because it was quite potent and they wouldn't serve him anymore but he thought they may serve a schoolboy. Now so here you've got a very sort of blown up, exaggerated um, idea of what these things will do. But of course, you know, you know about placebo effects. You, that's something you've learned about. So you understand that if you took this and you had diarrhea, or if you took this and you had, um, well, maybe not diarrhea, but if you took this and had some complaint or something, it may magically disappear. So you've transformed yourself. You've transformed yourself on the basis of the reputation of this information that's been given to you. And the reputation of the magic man 
The other problem about deregulated or free market medical information is that you can be given too little information. Uh, excuse the literary illusion, but it's too little. But I, th I thought I'd give it to you as a good example, partly because it's about Oxford and you know, that connection. But the other thing is that it's also about liminality. When we're taking medicines, and I'm sure that um, you've read people like Victor Turner. He, he was someone that I liked a lot when I was studying anthropology. This sense that you're crossing a threshold when you take something. You are never 100% certain about the medicine that you're taking. Or, or in these days, you certainly weren't. When, it, when I say these days, I'm talking about um, up until probably about the 50s. So you're, you're stepping into the change, and we know what happens with Alice in Wonderland. She, she drinks and she becomes too big for the room, and it's a bit of a headache. I'm going to show you another example. It's aside from a, a company that you have all heard of. Who's heard of Bayer? Or Bayer, if you're going to give it a Germanic pronunciation. So, not very much information about this. It's heroin hydrochloride. It's adapted for the manufacture of cough elixirs, cough balsams, cough drops, cough lozenges, and cough medicine of any kind. But it's not really telling you much about it. It's not telling you about the risks of taking her. And there's nothing that's saying if you're pregnant, don't take it. It's not even saying that if you take this, you know, a couple of times a week, you may forget that you've got a cough and just keep taking it because, you know, frankly, it's the kind of day that you want to take it on. No relax. I, I, I thought you all know about Coca-Cola, so I wasn't going to give you that. But 7-Up Lithiated. Does anyone know what Lithiated means? Lithian ions, yes? Yeah. So it used to be crammed full of lithium, which you probably know is now given to people for bipolar disorder. And actually, lithium is really toxic, if given in large quantities. 7-Up. I, I, I mean, this is a fairly modern one. I think this is from the 50s. It's, um, it went through some name changes. 7-Up is a kind of connotation of, you know, biplanar, something, something, seven, something. For um, hospital homes, the site I didn't show you was of a baby clubbing a bottle of this. Um, so when we look at um, the, these examples of, of marketing, the marketing of things that are good for you and things that will cure you and things that will transform you from feeling down or, or, or pained or whatever to being someone who's healthy. There's something that certainly comes across, and it's that companies don't really want to um, give you too much information, and it's a bit of a headache if they have to market honest information. And by honest information, I don't mean that whether or not something 
is you, you don't have to emphasize the risks of something, but you should certainly tell people if what they're taking could have a long-term risk. But until fairly recently, the information that was given to people was limited to what their doctor told them and to possibly in other countries, but not so in the UK where advertising has been very regulated, what the adverts have told you about a particular, um, a, a particular product. And in fact, it was in 1999, it was a significant year, because it was the first year in which, in this country at least, it was made compulsory for information, objective, slightly boring but frank information to anyone who was given a packet of medicines. And I'm just going to get one of those. Okay, so here is, a, I've redacted it because I, I have to sign confidentiality agreements on these things, but here is um, a patient information leaflet. And this would normally be folded up, it's printed on 40 gram paper so it can be folded up well into something like that. And then when you get your box of pills or ampules or whatever, you get a leaflet like this. And I didn't get the longest one today, but I got one that I thought would show you the sort of photographical complexity of these leaflets. The problem there then is that patient information leaflets are often too complicated. So going from one extreme to the other, you're going from the sort of tell people what they want to hear to tell people more than they need to know. Does anyone know the right reading age of, you know, if you want to address the largest number of people, what the, the best sort of register is to write for? I hope you're considering this. I'll but put it in terms of, um, let's make it, ages I think are a bit abstract, let's make it in terms of magazines or publications. So what, what publication or magazine do you think really addresses the middle ground? Reader's Digest. It's perfect. It's the largest circulation publication out there. I don't know if it's just a coincidence that it's always in doctor's waiting rooms. It's printed in God knows how many countries. Um, and their demographics, and I, I'm sorry that I couldn't dig out the charts for you, but their demographics are absolutely spread. It's one of the few things, uh, publications, that is read by um, sort of educated working class people as well as um, upper middle class people and educated professionals and so on. Reader's Digest. So if you really, you know, if you're writing something that's going to have a wider audience than your supervisor and that you hope will be accessible to people, pick up a copy of Reader's Digest. I'm not saying that it's great literature, but it will give you an idea of clarity. And I know something. The work that they put into editing it is second to none. The sun is quite similar. The sun is very well written. 
Uh, and we were always told that the song, you know, was written by English graduate, English literature graduates. The, thing, the reason I didn't include the song is because it is too clever. It actually has a lot of, you know, sort of iconoclastic ideas in it. It's it, it's um, jingoistic at times. You know, it, it's. It's not broadly accessible. It's actually quite targeted. But read his digest. I, I hope if there's one thing that you take away from this lecture, it's that if you want to write things that are accessible, have a look at read his digest. Have a look at the composition of your ideas. But remember, that's really cultural. There's a lot of writing on how, um, how different cultures assert themselves differently in text. So we can see this is really too complicated, but it's critical safety information. Another example. If you're taking narcotics such as morphine used to treat moderate to severe pain, or if you're taking large doses of aspirin, although there is no evidence that dorsa, lamy, whatever that is, hydrochloride interacts with aspirin, some other medicines which relate to that one and which are taken by mouth have been known to interact with aspirin. Hello? I mean, that would be forgivable if you had written it last thing at night because you had to get your essay in the next morning. But this is something that was produced by a multi-billion pound pharmaceutical company that just feels that it's got better things to do. I don't want to sound too critical to say pay my wages, but who feels that indirectly, but they feels that they've got better things to do than to concentrate on the information which they should morally be providing to their patients. The problem is that you don't want to simplify things too much. And when we talk about information design and how you express information, you can be a bit too vague. Um, I, I don't know if you've read the blog Bites of New York City, but he's the man, and he defines history in these terms. So, don't oversimplify. It's not about simplification, but it's about plainness and plain language, which is sort of reader's digest language, is what's accessible. And it's not really about accessibility in terms of, oh yeah, you know, I've got nothing better to do with my life than to sit down and read these leaflets whenever I'm giving them. I will forgo Moby Dick and War and Peace to read this. It's not that. It's simply that. Statistically, if you've got 8 million of these in circulation, 8 million patients are receiving the medicine. So let's say that one in a thousand of those patients, and that's a conservative estimate, has an adverse reaction to something. They're sweating, they're shivering, they're anxious. At that point, it may be helpful for them to be able to refer to the information, the instructions. Tell them what they're doing. Tell them if it's normal. Tell them if they need to call an ambulance. So, I'm not sure about maths, but 8 million in circulation, 
one in a thousand people has some adverse reaction. So your target audience for this is going to be 8,000 people. But 8,000 really, really critical situations where you want people to have access to information that's well designed, that's plainly put, and well designed and plainly put information is a reassurance in itself. You don't need to resort to hyperbole or, or grand claims or, or sort of, you know, this medicine will take you into the astral plane, it will, you know, whatever. You don't have to do that. Just put it plainly, not simply, but plainly. I started by saying that my hands were tied when producing these, and that's because you have to work with templates, and this is an example of part of a template. The template's a few pages long, and you can see there, just do not take, etc. That could be converted into there. You see, the problem with giving a template is that it doesn't really control the content. So do not use if you're allergic, da da da, if you're allergic, da da da. If you're prior to myringotomy, paracentesis, and acute otitis media, or before other operative procedures, the external auditory reactus or in inner ear sandwich to the inner ear cannot be. Yeah, whatever. And the other problem. It's not just bad content, it's concentration. If you want to find information quickly, you don't want to be looking for it in a haystack. And, and bear in mind that it doesn't stop in a paragraph like that, but it just goes on and on and on. And okay, you found the information, you've understood it, it was written sympathetically, it wasn't written with too many difficult words, but now it's ambiguous. I wanted to subtitle, or at least actually offer an alternative title for this talk, which was um, Snake Oil for Bumpkins, because a lot of the attitudes that come through, uh, that, that we've inherited in how we talk about medicine to people, is somehow, I think, connected to snake oil for bumpkins. It's the idea that we're sort of magical, healing, powerful, all of this pill will make you dance and sing, purveyors. And the people that take this stuff can, you know, they're bumpkins. They're not scientists, they're not intellectuals, they can just take it and we'll see what happens. And the worst thing is, is ambiguity, because we get loads of, we, we actually get feedback on these things. We get loads of feedback on, on stuff like this. It could be swallowed either undiluted or diluted with liquids such as water or squash, but not acidic drinks. So is squash acidic? Most drinks are acidic. Yeah. But I thought squash is acidic. But maybe what they mean is not the sort of 
the extra fruit squash or something. It gets complicated. We, we had a leaflet one that was about um, tea, and it was for an antipsychotic, and it was saying, well, don't take this if you are drinking black tea, because it was produced by a German pharmaceutical company, and they tend not to drink tea with milk. They don't drink tea with milk at all now. So for them, black tea is what we drink here in this country with milk. And the problem was they were distributing this medicine, these instructions, do not take with black tea. And everyone thought it was absolutely fine to take this medicine because they took their tea with milk. And if you compound the issue there, this is an antipsychotic medicine that is less effective when taken with tea. So you can imagine, and the NHS, uh, at least mental health services, often run on tea and sympathy. You can imagine that, um, and, and some drugs, but you can imagine that um, people will be bouncing off the walls if they're drinking tea in combination with antipsychotic medicines. So we're looking for ways to produce plain information that is now, uh, since 2006, have got to have their instructions tested and you have to produce a report, a bit like, you know, just so you have to produce a clinical trial to validate the compound, you have to produce a report that validates your instructions. And, uh, and that's done using focus groups because I mean, okay, look, you can get computer software. You've probably seen on Word um, that you, you run a document through Word and you get a Fleisch-Kincaid reading index or the FOG index, and anyone knows what those mean, all, all that stuff. But it doesn't actually help tell you whether or not something is readable. And it doesn't pick up ambiguity either. Automated reading software, you know, that, that tells you the complexity of, of language, doesn't tell you if something's ambiguous or poorly formatted. So we show them to focus groups. And it's actually something called the Australian method, which isn't, um, it's, it sounds like a birth control method, but it's not. It's called the Australian method because the whole thing about demystifying and decluttering these was started in Australia. And I think there's a lesson there, a cultural lesson, about how people perceive doctors, authority, and information. And whereas I know from my German clients that German consumers tend to be very deferential towards the instructions that are given to them, and they, they don't mind if they're really long and complex, in Australia, they like to be direct. If you've ever heard Australian Parliament, you know what I mean. It's a culture that celebrates directness. Don't mess me around, doctor. Does my leg have to come off? Or can I go on smoking? It's that sort of directness. So the Australian method is what we, is what we do. We get a group of people, 20 people per focus group, we look for a good distribution of people. So if you've got 20 people, it works out that basically in this segment, from no qualification to um, O-levels, which I think is equivalent to what you get at 15 or 16 in the States, 
then you're looking to have about 60% of people and then a few cleverer people I shouldn't use that a few others educated others in the, in the other se segment and we also balance for age and for gender so this is fairly standard it's bog standard um, anthropological method as used by focus groups, marketing, whatever you're just making sure that you have a representative sample and we think of a bunch of questions to ask them so we look at the, the leaflet, we think what are the key safety issues there and we try to get a few questions for each of the various domains within the information um, what's the normal site of this medicine have you applied a doctor to your eye, what must you do? And then we ask those questions. We ask them in formal interviews, one-on-one -on -one interviews. And these are my participants, 120. And these are the questions that I've asked them. I've gone, tip pop up, what does this tell me about? If it's dark, it means it's um, difficult. And if it's black, it means it's impossible. So what does this tell me about questioning that then? Yeah. yeah, it was hard. So question 11 was, you have low blood pressure, what should you do before starting to take Imagex? So we'd look up that section in the leaflet, and we'd say, oh yeah, people aren't understanding that, or wonder why. They've probably given us comments, and we'd change that part of the leaflet. It's a simple start. Until we go through another round. So here, for example, uh, participant 20 basically struggled. They could be dyslexic or have bad um, eyesight or something. Um, but there's a very clear pattern. Question 11, people didn't really get the gist of. And question 14, people didn't get the gist of either. But whatever those questions were, the, um, if we see a clear pattern like that, we'll act on it as a matter of course. If we get two blacks in one, um, in one group of ten, then the leaflet has officially failed. Um, it's actually a, a standardised method. So the, uh, when we produce a report, we have to say that the leaflet failed at that time. And the leaflet cannot go to press, and it cannot be distributed to the public, because in the focus group, there were two failures. And you can imagine the kind of pressure that that um, uh, puts us under sometimes, because they want these medicines out. I mean, drugs companies have got wacky deadlines. They want these so when you change those, you then take them back to a focus group, yep. and hopefully those are cleared up. Exactly. We always start with 10, and then if it was clear with the first 10, we go on to the next 10, and, uh, and we expect it to be clear in the next 10. Actually, what happened here was that it was clear in the first 10, but in the next 10, we picked up a problem. And so it will then, in this case, it had to go to another 20. Um, the, the fact is that most people are, aren't inclined to read these leaflets unless 
they're in a critical situation, in which case they do read them, typically. And as with a, a lot of, in fact, most behavioral testing, it's artificial. I mean, the best you can do is give people an environment in which they feel relatively relaxed and comfortable um, and incentivize them to attend and then give them the leaflet. Um, does it make it, does something like this, can you increase the uptake or, or, of a leaflet? Possibly not instantaneous, it's more of a cultural thing. I think that as leaflets become improved, and become more accessible, then people uh, become more used to referring to them. Um, I think until fairly recently, though, the, the leaflets were written in such an accessible language, as some of those um, examples demonstrated, that people just don't bother with them at all. We, um, uh, we don't collect information about how much people habitually... Oh, we do, actually. We have... How often do you read leaflets? Yeah. So but most people do refer to them from time to time. Um, uh, in, in terms of accessibility, um, I, mean, I mean, yes, there, there, there are things, that are, there, are, there are guidelines about font size, for example, in making them in a large enough font that people will, um, even with diminished eyesight, will, will pick them up and, and have a look at them. But that's accessibility, it's not quite advertising their presence. Um, and of course, the only other thing is that they are compulsorily uh, in, in every single packet of medicine. So in a sense, I mean, the way of um, making them available to, to people through the supply chains by putting them in the medicine box. The, the problem with putting anything into, with providing any information to people is that a drugs company can say, well, we told you so. We warned you about these side effects. So, you know, we made it clear and available to you. So, of course, um, the, the drugs companies are, are protecting themselves to an extent by, by producing instruction leaflets. However, the idea that those instruction leaflets should be accessible to people hasn't gone down well with drugs companies. They, it's an expensive process. I mean, imagine every single drug that you produce, you have to get a focus group to look at the leaflet, it's expensive. Um, so they're not that happy about having to have their leaflets made accessible, and but it's compulsory. So um, whereas they may gain some protection, which they had previously as well by you know having small print, um, they must now make that small print accessible, and that's compulsorily enforced.